the Tazewell County Board Chairman recently cast the tie-breaking vote rejecting a new restrictive wind farm ordinance. Even if the state hadn't had passed the new siting authority, I probably would have opposed this bill. Find out why just ahead on All Things Peoria. Good afternoon. I'm Colin Shope. Jody Holtz has the day off. Coming up, WCBU's Joe Deacon speaks to Tazewell County Board Chairman Dave Zimmerman about the county's approach to energy projects and learn about new apartments aimed at the growing 18 to 24-year-old population experiencing homelessness in the Peoria area. We've kind of been long overdue for this. Plus, the Peoria Fire Chief explains a new program aimed at recovering money spent on fire responses from insurance companies. Those stories, plus local news just ahead. This is WCBU's All Things Peoria on 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope in for Jody Holtz. Tazewell County leaders are trying to maintain some control over renewable energy projects in the county. Earlier this year, Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a new law establishing statewide standards for wind and solar farm siting. At its February meeting, a divided county board voted down a proposed wind farm ordinance sought by a group called United Citizens, and board chair David Zimmerman cast the tie-breaking vote. A potential solar farm project also failed to receive board approval. In a conversation with WCBU reporter Joe Deacon, Zimmerman explains why he voted against the proposed wind farm ordinance. Two reasons, actually. The first reason is the ordinance would have been illegal right out of the chute. Uh, in lame duck session, the Illinois legislature took citing authority away from counties and put it within the state, and they set the guidelines. And the ordinance, as proposed by the group in southern Tazewell County, United Citizens, uh, it would have been illegal as soon as we passed it. So what did the proposed ordinance change entail? Well, it was uh, having setbacks that were like 3,000 feet. Essentially, even if the state hadn't had passed the new siting authority, I probably would have opposed this bill because for all intents and purposes, it would have... Uh, disallowed any wind farm in Tazewell County. The setbacks were so great. The board also voted to reject a solar farm project sought by Solar Stone Partners. What was the reasoning behind that vote? That was a difficult decision, but it was unanimous. It was up in Grossenbach Road in northern Tazewell County. It was essentially in a residential area, and we would have had to change the zoning back to Z1 and that's the kind of spot zoning, for one, that we don't like to do. And then secondly, it was opposed by virtually all the neighbors in that area. Uh, the Pekin Park District land is where it would have been. And we've talked to the Pekin Park District. I think they, if they had to do it over again, that they would do a better job of communicating with the neighbors in the area to get their buy-in on this solar farm also. As you mentioned, in the lame duck session, there was legislation passed and later signed by Governor Pritzker that somewhat limits what counties and local governments can do in terms of regulating where solar and wind farms can go. What are your concerns with this new law? Well, from the wind farm side, it, it's helpful because they have a standard set of rules across the entire state of Illinois. From a county's perspective, we always oppose any bill that takes away 
local authority, uh, whether it's any kind of ordinance. And so we opposed that, and we sent a pretty strong letter to the governor and the legislatures uh, voicing that. The problem is, is that having Chicago legislators telling us how to do our zoning in Tazewell County, sometimes we find it kind of offensive. So are you open to allowing other renewable energy projects such as solar and wind farms in Tazewell County? Very much so. Very much so. I'd like to see wind farms. I think they bring some benefits, road improvements for some of our poorer townships. It brings in property tax revenues for the schools. As a matter of fact, we currently have 15,000 acres under contract for solar. So they're coming to Tazewell County. Shifting gears slightly, what are your thoughts on the potential Wolf Carbon Solutions ADM pipeline and how that might impact Tazewell County? That's a good question because I'm getting mixed uh, signals. I don't know that much about the CO2 pipeline. I know that uh, it would start in Clinton, Iowa and end up in Decatur and it would cut through Tazewell County. And so I'm hearing two different things. I was invited to a seminar Uh, by a local environmental organization that I know is very much against that. And then I read an editorial in the Chicago Tribune on Monday, and they say that this would be a boon for Tazewell County. So the jury's still out on how uh, Tazewell County will uh, come down on this issue. We don't have a lot of authority in that regard, uh, but we can voice concerns if we have legitimate concerns. So what other land use considerations will Tazewell County need to decide regarding carbon and environmental issues? Well, I mean, on a more practical basis, I mean, farmers uh, have the concerns of a pipeline going through. Not that there's a lot of pipelines that go through Tazewell County right now, but when they put those in, they obviously um, tear up the crops, but the farmers reimburse for that. But long term, because of the compaction of the different cranes and bulldozers, it reduces the um, yields on those specific areas. But I'm not sure how Tazewell County would benefit other than some uh, temporary construction jobs as they come through the county. Along similar lines to the Wolf ADM pipeline, where do you stand on possible deep well CO2 injection sites considered by Navigator? So I honestly don't have an opinion that yet on those issues, Joe. They haven't come to Tazewell County formally either either organization and presented their proposals. As I understand it, they're working very diligently in Iowa right now, and when they have everything squared there, then they'll come to Illinois. They go to the siting authority at the state. Once they've given them a certificate of authority, then we can voice some of our concerns, and the commission will take those into consideration. One other topic we've discussed before, what efforts are being made to improve broadband access in rural parts of the county? That's the uh, $100 million question, and that's probably what it would cost in order for us to bring broadband to every household. There's not a whole lot of appetite on the part of the board to invest, and that's for a number of reasons. Uh, We have some members that are convinced that 10, 20 years down the road, Uh, that it's not going to be broadband that we're looking at, but it's all going to be wireless. So why would we invest literally tens of millions of dollars now in order to make that happen? Uh, Secondly, Tazewell County runs fairly lean, very lean. That's why we have one of the lowest tax rates in the state of Illinois. And so to go after the grants that are available, 
uh, it gets very complicated, and then you have to have some matching funds that uh, we don't have money set aside for that right now. So I, I think it'll happen, just not as quickly as maybe people in the rural areas would like it to happen. That's Tazewell County Board Chairman David Zimmerman talking to WCBU's Joe Deacon about broadband availability and renewable energy. To hear more of the conversation, go to WCBU.org. You're listening to All Things Peoria. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope, in for Jody Holtz. A new four-story apartment complex in downtown Peoria will offer supportive housing catered towards youth experiencing homelessness. WCBU's Tim Shelley interviews Phoenix Community Development Services Director Christine Call about the project. The 18 to 24-year-old youth is kind of one of the growing demographics that we're seeing in the homeless numbers in our region, so we've kind of been long overdue for this. Many um, youth who are finding themselves in this situation include youth who have aged out of the child welfare system, um, disconnected from family of origin, oftentimes um, around LGBTQ issues, that kind of thing. So there's lots of reasons why this age group um, gets into this situation. So by having a dedicated program, it's going to allow us to do more age-specific, you know, um, supportive services for this age demographic and stuff, um, you know, focusing on life skills that are unique to this age. As I explained to somebody the other day, it, there's a very big difference in the type of services that we give to, you know, one of our 60-plus-year-old Vietnam veterans versus an 18- to 24-year-old who just aged out of you know, child welfare. So your approach to self-sufficiency is different. So that's part of what we hope to do by having a dedicated program. The other thing um, that the building will include is an arts collaborative um, space um, on the ground floor in the back part of the building. And the back part of the building will open directly onto where our mural is currently. You've probably seen the big Dream Believe mural. And so we intend to kind of build out that whole area back there um, as kind of like an urban oasis for our residents, but um, specifically having some kind of an arts collaborative in the back of this building. The the other financing um, that's included in the overall total is that there is a 15-year um, commitment of long-term operating support for seven of the units in that building. So that's also included in the financing that was approved. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specific supports that this uh, particular population needs? You mentioned a lot of them are, are aging out of foster care and uh, probably uh, need different supports than other uh, populations, say. Sure. Well, it, you know, if you if you think about it in the terms of like tenancy supports, right, which is kind of you know, what we focus on about ending homelessness is, you know, young people that are aging out don't always know, like, what do I need to look for in an apartment? How do I negotiate rent with landlords? You know, um, how do I read through a lease and know what, you know, the favorable terms are and the unfavorable terms and what my obligations as a tenant are under lease? Because they will be a leaseholder in this building. So it's, you know, kind of a staging ground, I feel, you know, to learn those kinds of things that, you know, as many young people start going out on their own, they don't necessarily know about. So um, another example would be 
how many of them don't understand what it means when a landlord says you've got to get utilities in your name. They don't know what that means. And if they do know what that means, they still don't necessarily know how they go about it. You know, how do you reach out to Ameren and get utilities? How do you reach out to the water company? So things like that, you know, you're teaching them, you know, how to be able to live independently as a good tenant. Um, And then the other supportive services um, that are provided there are more around, um, you know, the disabling conditions that they have. So the mental health conditions, substance abuse conditions, things like that. Those kind of wraparound services are also made available there. What's your timeline for uh, demolition of the current building on the site and construction of the new building? Um, We have a a 12-month construction schedule. Um, This is a small enough building. There's a chance that we will be early on that. Um, The problem is that As you know, we just opened the adjacent property this past year, and we hit all kinds of underground problems. There were actually structures under there um, and stuff, and so we were in a lot of delays. And so, you know, we really extended this, hoping, you know, that we don't have a delay. So, you know, I'm hoping March of 2024 is what I'm hoping for for occupancy, and then there's a chance – Especially, you know, with with the homeless population, we hope to get them in actually in the winter time. So my contractor knows. I start laying the guilt on them, frankly, you know, in December and saying, "I've got people living on the street. Can you move a little faster?" and stuff. So, latest would be March of 2024. That was Christine Call speaking with Tim Shelley about new permanent supportive housing for youth experiencing homelessness in the Peoria area. You're listening to All Things Peoria. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope. Jody Holtz has the day off. The Peoria Fire Department is moving forward with a program to recover funds from insurance companies for service after originally considering a similar program in 2019. I spoke with Chief Sean Solberger to learn more about this process. Basically where these discussion pieces started is is coming up with creative ways, potentially exploring options on how we could create money, um, revenue streams. Um, which is difficult to do as a fire department. At the last city council meeting, you got the go-ahead on uh, developing, creating a fire recovery fee program. Would you mind explaining what that is and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is not a unique program. There's 150 communities within the state of Illinois alone that do something similar to this. Uh, We we fully vetted this thing. We sat down with all of the uh, council members, city manager, mayors, individually, asked them, as I put this presentation forward, you know, what do you see? And we tweaked it along the way. And what we ended up with is that we can create guarantees through this contract with potentially whatever company we end up using um, to guarantee that no taxpayer is going to see a bill. This is basically us um, or me personally going through all of these incidents. And and if there's any provisions within homeowners policies, um, auto insurance policies, and so the provisions read potentially fire department, fire department services rendered. Um, and then it would just be us working with that company and p- being able to try to garner those funds back. There have been some prominent promotions within the fire department over the last few weeks. Would you mind telling me about some of those? Yeah, um, I'm sure most people followed, at least I hope, um, in regards to the fire chief search. And um, myself and uh, at, at that time, Assistant Chief uh, Rick Morgan put in for the job. Um, and, and fortunately, I did get it. Um, that being said, as we unfolded through that process, um, Rick Morgan, uh, 52 years old, 
29 and a half years of service. Um, he elected to retire last month. Um, and I, I just I think that that's worth mentioning because Rick is such a or was or is <laughs> um, I mean because he's still alive, um, such an impact to our community. Honestly, um, it, it was a pleasure working with Rick and he elected to retire. He earned that. Um, and so as we went through that time and as hard as that was for us, the bright side of that is, is where we're at today. Um, we have the ability to get a new assistant chief, and that's Tony Cummings. Um, he's a 1992 graduate of Peoria High School, along with myself. We were classmates. Um, and some people may look at that. Oh, here we go again. You know, favoritism. Tony's earned this promotion. He has a master's degree in fire science. Um, he is a great value to our community, and he is an excellent professional firefighter. He's been a paramedic for 24 years. Um, so as t- Tony was brought forward um, to assistant chief, that had us the ability to promote uh, division chief. And Lori Baxter, 1988 graduate of Peoria Richwoods. Um, obviously, you're seeing a common theme. Um, we have Peoria products in Peoria positions, and I, I like that probably the most about this whole thing. Um, Lori and I came on the job together. Once again, probably people look at that and say there's a little bit of favoritism, um, and there's not. Lori has earned this job. Um, it's, it's difficult for us to find females interested in a male-dominant profession, and Lori has stood the test of time, and she's worked all ranks. Um, she's worked on the executive board with Peoria Firefighters Local 50, worked in several fundraisers with local charities. Um, she is just an excellent asset to our department, whether she's at the rank of firefighter or at the rank of division chief of operations. So. Um, Those two promotions are extremely important to us also from the standpoint of we have had crazy, crazy turnover in our administration and our command staff. And hopefully, you know, God willing, everyone remains healthy. Um, We're young. Um, we still have many years to work, and, and it's going to provide long-term leadership for our for our department. And it, it's worth mentioning, Lori came from the ranks of battalion chief, so we did have the ability to make a battalion chief promotion. And Ryan Calhoun, um, you know, with his 23 years of service, um, was promoted to the rank of battalion chief. Another piece of this, right, is the apprenticeship program that's returning. Um, I believe applications close at the end of this month, right? And last time we talked to you, uh, there was around four applicants. Uh, what's that number at now? <laughs> it's not four it's it's 17 so we're very excited about that and so this does lead into recruitment and retention Uh, us starting this apprenticeship program is extremely important to the success of this department and there's other skilled labor that have apprentice Um, we had a cadet program which is a little bit different we are skilled labor and there's just no way around that. So creating this apprenticeship program is going to create longevity for the future, getting youth interested in our job earlier in their lives. But that also leads to the, the possible diversification, you know, a, a minority recruitment, all these things. We're going to have the ability to impact three people's lives who hopefully then take that challenge and want to impact the community in a positive way. So we're excited about the number 17, having that many applicants. That's, that's very exciting. It closes at the end of this month, so I would challenge anybody who's considering, you know, wanting to apply for this. Um, get your names in. We're going to be doing interviews the month of April. Um, get our committee together the month of May. Make three selections, and, uh, and they'll start June first. There was a, a major fire incident late Monday night that included during the the process a shift rotation. Would you describe a little bit about how the response to an incident of that size works when you're you're bridging the gap between different, uh, I guess, sets of personnel? Yeah, that's very challenging, um, and, and it potentially, from the outside looking in, creates confusion, right, that you have crews that work together on a daily basis, 24 hours a day, um, and then the element of someone being there, and then all of a sudden you have just one person that's not part of your crew. 
I would uh, just let the Peoria community know that this fire department, our professional firefighters, are some of the best in the state, if not the whole country, and they adapt very well. Um, so where it does have the potential of creating a little bit of confusion, um, our guys swoop right in and they understand what their jobs are and what their requirements are, and they do an excellent job every single day. The Fire Monday is believed to potentially be intentionally set, an arson situation. What's going on in that investigation right now, if anything, that you can tell us about? Yeah, it, it's tough during these when you have an active investigation. So um, Peoria Fire Department has two arson investigators, and they do an incredibly good job, and that's Brad Pearson and Josh Harris, and they're leading the investigation on this particular thing. So once we have more information to provide, we'll provide that. And the uh, arson investigators also brought on two new arson-sniffing dogs mm-hmm. last year. Um, were they on scene Monday? Uh, have they seen much deployment? And how has that program been going so far? The program's been going great. We actually could not be any happier, to be honest with you. Um, but we also knew when we acquired this that it takes time. Uh, we just don't acquire these dogs, and all of a sudden we're like, man, we've got arson dogs. Um, it, 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 it requires a, a, a lot of time, a lot of training. They're about midway through their training in regards to this, and they're, they're ahead of schedule. Um, Brad Pearson's dog's name is Rock. Josh Harris's dog's name is Molly. And both of them are doing an incredibly good job. But that being said, the, the, the long answer to that was yes. Um, Brad Pearson's the lead investigator on this particular fire, and Rock was on the scene. And so what this did give us the ability was to take Rock from a controlled environment into an uncontrolled environment. Right. And so that's part of the learning phase, too. So as they're marking these boxes, Rock did have the ability to work in an uncontrolled environment. And he did. He was very helpful during this investigation. That was Peoria Fire Department Chief Sean Solberger. The next step on the fee recovery program is putting the system out for bid so the department can partner with a billing company. You're listening to All Things Peoria. And that's all for today's episode of All Things Peoria from WCBU, a public service of Bradley University and Illinois State University. I'm Colin Shope, in for Jody Holtz. Thanks for listening. Story help today came from Tim Shelley and Joe Deacon. Holden Kellogg produced this episode of All Things Peoria. For more information on all of these stories, head to wcbu.org. And of course, you can also subscribe to the All Things Peoria podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or the NPR app. And we do want to know what you think of the show. Let us know by commenting on our Facebook page, We're Peoria Public Radio, or following us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBU Radio. This is 89.9 FM and WCBU.org, Peoria Public Radio, part of the NPR Network.